folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Well, it looks like the absence of donuts has impacted our attendance. <laughs> But for those of you who did not hear me say it earlier, the, the fryer caught on fire, oh. and that is why <laughs> we don't have donuts this week. I think it's a thing, not a person. That was my understanding. So we'll have to just be spiritually nourished as opposed to also physically nourished with whatever dubious nourishment value the donuts have for us. All right, so um, this is the third and final week in this particular <laughs> series of conversations around the lectionary, and I think I mentioned last week that I have I never really quite know what to do with the Psalms because I just don't have a poetic uh, turn of mind, and then here we have a bunch of Isaiah, and then the Psalms, and really weird New Testament passages, so it's going to be an interesting day <laughs> talking about these. I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> so, um, let's start with Isaiah, though. Isaiah is a um, really interesting book. Some scholars think that it was actually written in three phases through three different generations within a prophetic tradition. And we have these um, references even in the Old Testament to the house of the prophets or the houses of prophets and seems to suggest schools of thought teachers and pupils, the handing down of particular perspectives on society and on God. And so Isaiah seems to have moved through multiple stages of development. And as you reach the end of, toward the end of the book where we are now, into the later stages, we're solidly into what Christians refer as the intertestamental period, the period kind of between the two testaments between when Israel comes out of exile and uh, from Babylon back to the land of uh, promise and then when Jesus shows up and we get the newer testament in Judaism this is called the second temple period because you've got the temple that Solomon builds with all the supplies that David gathers that's the first temple and then all that gets destroyed and neglected and then when they move back they rebuild another temple. There are handouts sitting on the corner of the table back there uh, with the text on it for those of you who have come in and welcome to you all. <laughs> Do, would, would you like to introduce your guests? Sure. I think everyone knows Ruth and I. This is Ruth's parents, Bill and Linda. Great to meet you guys and to have you here. So we're talking about Isaiah, uh, the first of the readings, and I was waxing poetic about different names for a 400-year period <laughs> as we shift from B.C. to A.D. or B.C.E. to C.E. Um, so you've got that second temple that gets built, and then that gets added on to roughly contemporary to Jesus by Herod the Great, who built all kinds of stuff. And that's the temple that you have when Jesus is actually kicking around Jerusalem and Judea later on. So we're kind of in between those phases 
as we're looking at Isaiah. And one of the things that develops during this period is an apocalyptic mentality. Um, maybe some of you know that the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, is called the Apocalypse of John, or the revelation, the unveiling that occurs to John. And the basic idea in this whole apocalyptic frame of mind is that the world's going along, but at some point, really, really soon, there's going to be this dramatic change and this dramatic reveal, kind of like a makeover reality TV show when you're like, well, this has been their journey, and okay, let's, let's pull, the, pull the curtain away and see what the end result is, right? And I bring that up because there's, there's these competing tendencies in this passage and really through all of Scripture between that kind of apocalyptic frame of mind which says at any moment we're going to see what the end result is. At any moment we're going to hit the payoff. At any moment it could happen and everything's going to change. That's one impulse. And then there's another impulse which we might call a spiritualizing impulse which says, maybe, <laughs> right, maybe, in the meantime, <laughs> we've got other things to worry about, and maybe we need to think of um, our expectations, think of what we believe the end game is going to be, think of that in more spiritual terms, as something that we participate in spiritually right now, as opposed to something that's going to happen literally in this dramatic fashion at any moment. So that's kind of the difference between a spiritualized perspective and an eschatologized or apocalyptic perspective. And you kind of get them both in Isaiah. And then um, the psalm that we have is very much on the spiritualized side, <laughs> as, we'll, as we'll see as we get in. So we start off um, talking about you know, calling people who thirst to come drink from the waters, people who have no money, come by and eat, and you know, with inflation running rampant, right, I don't know if that caught your attention like it caught my attention, because I feel like I can't buy in the same way as I did even a year ago, right? Come buy and eat, okay, but we've got no money. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price, right? And so now our minds should be going, hold on, like there's something wrong here. There's a disconnect somewhere. Why is it that all the normal ways that society works is breaking down? We can just show up without money and eat and get all this stuff? It's weird, right? And then we see, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. And I love that language. This is what really, it was that line that really got me into this text. The idea of spending your labor, right? It's not usually how we think about it. We think about spending the money, that makes sense. But really we're spending our time getting that money. We're spending our labor and our effort on whatever that task is that's then bearing this kind of financial fruit. And it's saying, why are you doing this stuff for things that you don't really need, right? Not bread. We know the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, everything that we need, our basic essentials, right? It's not that you're wasting your money on. Your labor is going to something that's not satisfying. 
I'm sure we can all relate to that in one way or another throughout our lives. So what we're getting hinted at here is the idea that there's a vision for the way that the world is now and also a way that it could or should be that's fundamentally different, right? And in the way that the world could or should be, you can buy and eat without money. You can get that wine and that milk without money. You don't have to spend, waste your money on these things that aren't important, that aren't really the core of what it means to be human. You don't have to waste your labor on things that aren't meaningful. That's what we're being called to. Listen carefully, eat what is good, delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you may live. So it sets up this whole alternative social picture as much by kind of implication or suggestion through these few evocative lines that say, you know, shift your imagination, get shaken out of how you normally think about things. And then how, does, how do we reach this kind of different reality? We have to come to the Lord who's going to make an everlasting covenant. So we're, we're moving away from, in the imagination, kind of the natural concerns of economic life, the natural um, kind of reflexes for what we think is meaningful and important. And we're asked to reconsider what's truly meaningful and truly important. And it leaves us with the sense that any of the rest of the stuff that we normally kind of engage with and have to work through, it's probably a necessary evil at best, right? Sure, we kind of need to do these things. We need to spend our labor. We need to have the money to buy the bread in our day-to-day -day life. But things could be very different. Things will be very different, precisely because the Lord is making an everlasting covenant. Did the word delight jump out at you all there? This is one of those really evocative words throughout the scriptures. In verse 2, delight yourselves in rich food. There's Psalm 1. Right? Many folks have memorized Psalm 1. And verse 2 in Psalm 1 talks about delighting in the law of the Lord. Right? This idea of delight. So the, the rich food, you know, yes, food that you're eating, also the law of the Lord with this connection to the word delight. And then this idea of come to me made me think of a New Testament passage, right? Matthew 11, 28, and what comes after there? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, right? What's that tell us about labor? It's connected here, laboring for things that don't satisfy, alternatively come to Jesus. He totally revolutionizes what labor is, right? It's like, put on the yoke, you're going to be working, but it's easy. It's light. It's not laboring for that which doesn't satisfy. But the Lord is going to make an everlasting covenant. And who's that covenant with? For reading here. Certainly the people who delight themselves in the law of the Lord. Think Certainly the people who come to the Lord, who come to the waters to drink. But 
this is first and foremost Israel, right? We're reading Isaiah. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the idea of supersessionism or replacement theology, the idea that Christianity somehow replaces Judaism, or Gentile followers of Jesus somehow replace Jews as God's people. Well, that's hard to square with the idea that God's making an everlasting covenant. But that's the promise here, right? The everlasting covenant with God's people. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's, uh, you know, Paul and others in the New Testament thinking about how do you bring Gentile followers of Christ into that covenant? And does it look exactly the same for them? Or does it look maybe a little bit different, like not having to be circumcised, right? They have this big argument kind of throughout the New Testament. But it's all about bringing Gentiles into this already existing everlasting covenant. And it's the folks in the everlasting covenant who God will make a witness to peoples. And the folks of this everlasting covenant are going to call nations. They haven't even heard of yet. They don't know them. They're out there. Remain to be identified. And these nations that don't know them, right? They have never met. But they're going to run to Israel. Why? Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. So remember when we were talking about Genesis 15, I think it was last week, that when Abraham enters into a treaty, a covenant with God, and we had the animals cut in half and the torch and the pot, flaming pot and all of that kind of stuff walking down the center line. In that passage in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham how extensive the territory that his descendants will command will be. Basically, from the Nile to the Euphrates, right? Huge territory. In that period, incredibly geographically significant, much like it is today, but a real, you know, this would be a major political power. But it's this idea of expanding territory, right? We know Abraham had his 318 trained guys. He was located in a particular place, and his reach, his expanse was going to grow through his descendants. So it's kind of building outward. It's taking over. It's acquiring more. It's expanding. The vision here is very different, right? Because is there any expansion of Israel, so to speak? Are we dealing in geography? Not necessarily, right? There's this glorification, purification maybe, if we hearken back to Isaiah 6 and the vision that the prophet has of the Lord on the throne and the flaming coal touching his lips and now he can deliver the message. Right? There's a sense of purification in this text, but not this kind of expansion. Here, the nations come to Israel. They're coming in rather than this kind of expanding of territory. And so we remember when we were looking at Deuteronomy and uh, I think it was chapter 26, I can't remember if it was last week, the week before, we were talking about the aliens and the different things that the text had to tell us about the aliens and not in the Mulder and Scully X-Files sense, but in the sense of people from other nationalities, other nations who have immigrated into Israel and live there in whatever capacity, right? This idea of the coming in of those from outside to now partake 
in Israel's covenant, this everlasting covenant with God. And so again, back to that idea of supersessionism or replacement theology, what we get in the New Testament focused on Jesus is one particular version of this, the nations, the Gentiles coming in and being integrated within that already existing community of God's people, which is one of the key ways that um, you know, people like Paul and others trying to make sense of Jesus in their Jewishness you know, reached for, right? This idea of the nations coming in. And it's one vision of how Genesis chapter 12 gets fulfilled. Remember, Genesis 12 is when Abraham first shows up. God, he's kind of just chilling, and God says, uh, if you'll pardon my slightly colorful language, but this is on the radio these days, so I don't feel too bad, but Ab- or God says to Abraham, get off your ass and get going, right? Hebrew is lach lecha my favorite Hebrew phrase ever, right? <laughs> you just need a lot of phlegm. <laughs> Get up and go, right? And Abraham's like, why? And God's like, because I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Now we see, not by conquest, right? Not by centralizing and taking everything over, but because they're going to come. They're going to see this life. They're going to see this covenant. They're going to want a piece of it, and they're going to come. And that's the vision that we, of course, believe gets fulfilled in Christ. So when's it going to happen? <laughs> Been asking that question for a few thousand years, right? The answer is always within my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> always within my lifetime. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. It always makes me think of Jonah, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh, says, look, it's coming. (laughs) This is your last chance, right? For repentance. It could happen at any moment. That's the vision that we're given here now is your final opportunity now is your last chance now is the time you have to take advantage of it before everything changes before we'll once uh, we won't anymore labor for that which does not satisfy the time has almost come when we will be able to get the wine and the milk without money right All of this stuff is about to change dramatically. And that's that apocalyptic or eschatological view that I was talking about a little earlier. It's going to happen at any moment. You've got to get your stuff together. Be ready. And so we'll see some of that if we ever make it to our gospel reading today (laughs) in Luke. But very quickly before we turn from... um, Isaiah, a thought jumped out at me in verse 8. And this is a verse I think most of us have heard. It's a verse that gets referred to a lot. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. We've all heard that, right? Sounds really familiar. I don't know about you, and you can tell me if you're just a better reflexive interpreter than me, but whenever I hear that, I associate it with the idea of God is just so much bigger and so much more powerful and knows so much more that God's working on a different level. 
more or less how that usually hits for us? Yeah. I got thinking about this as I was reading this, and especially after, and you can see all my markings up. Like, I was, I was getting into that first part of this passage. I think we normally interpret verse 8 in light of Job 38. Job is a fascinating book, really complex book. Much of Job is some of the earliest writings that we think were in the Old Testament. Um, the Hebrew is absolutely archaic, even for Hebrew, <laughs> which is saying something. Um, but there's that bit in Job 38 when God finally shows up, right? Job's been like, God, come on, what's going on? Job's friends are running off at the mouth and honestly saying stuff that makes absolutely no sense. And Job knows it. <laughs> He's not giving in. God finally shows up. And what does God say? Job, where were you when I made all of this? Where were you when I set up this whole world? Where were you when I put the stars where they are? Right? Goes through this for like two chapters, basically saying to Job, I'm so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more knowledgeable than you, that you just need to chill out. Right? And so I think we read this verse through that lens, because it's definitely in there somewhere, right? But the more I thought about this, this is actually, God is making a moral point here. What are the thoughts that are not our thoughts? How about buying wine and milk without money, without price, right? It's not how we think about it. What are the ways uh, that are God's ways but not ours? Maybe laboring for something that does satisfy, that does mean something. We don't do that. And the whole idea is this is the shift that's going to happen. So that at some point, in some way, we'll be blessed that our ways will also be God's ways. Our way of seeing the world will also be God's way of seeing the world. When this shift happens, when this revelation happens, this apocalypse. It's fundamentally moral. It's about walking according to the vision that God has for human life. And God's saying, y'all ain't doing it. That's why you need to repent and seek me while I'm kicking around and you still have a chance. Because your ways aren't my ways. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. Catch up. Right? Well, we're in wise <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so uh, Psalm 63 is very similar language, very similar imagery. Look, for, for instance, at um, verse 5 with the idea of satisfaction and a rich feast. Lots of the same kind of themes. Except... In the psalm, it's all right now in some kind of spiritual sense, not something that's about to happen and remake the world. That's what I meant by saying the psalms tend to have a spiritualized vision, as opposed to thinking that in that apocalyptic way, that everything's about to change and get remade. The psalms are saying... Yeah, you can be satisfied in the Lord now in some spiritual sense. You can feast in the Lord now in some spiritual sense, right? Oh God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So you've got the hunger and the thirst, 
that was, you know, kind of implied in the Isaiah passage. But then you get verse 5, my soul is satisfied, not in the future, right? It's not something that happens, something doesn't have to change to make this happen. My soul is satisfied, as with the rich feast. My mouth praises. I meditate, for you've been my help. My soul clings, right? It's, there's, there's an already occurring element here. Now, it doesn't mean these things are in conflict, right? Because you can have this sense of spiritual fullness even while waiting for that to get reflected also in the world in which we live in our external life as opposed to our inner life, right? They aren't necessarily in conflict, but there's different emphasis here, right? The psalm is about the spiritual experience of God now, whereas Isaiah is about the way that God is going to remake everything so that it is the way that God wants it to be. Yeah. Just a question. Um, in NIV, it says, I will praise you. So it's almost future. So mm-hmm. is there a um, translation? Because it appears that it's... Um, yeah, so like, are you looking at three and four? Uh, five. I five. will be fully satisfied. Gotcha. So you... Mm-hmm. In the version we're looking at, you've got the will in three and four. So, um, steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Mm-hmm. I will bless you. Um, and then is satisfied. Mm-hmm. And then praises and so on from there. Um, Hebrew verb tenses are crazy. Um, <laughs> about 70% of all the biblical Hebrew is built on a particular verb tense. And about the other 30% is like 12 or 15 different verb tenses. <laughs> so <laughs> it gets real complicated real quick, especially once you put it into kind of the poetic mode. Um, yeah. At least it is a little bit in English. Sometimes we do. say, I will do this or won't do mm. that. And what they really mean is, I'm, I am not or I am. Yeah. Right. right. I won't stand for it. That means you're not standing for it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, the um, ASV, that was NIV, mm-hmm. kind of Bible app. So, yep. you know, I know there's different ones of those. The yep. ASV says, I shall. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then you get all the fun legal distinctions between will and shall, and yeah. Yep, yeah, but I mean, there's, there's also kind of the, let's call it psalmatic irony that these are songs that are sung in the context of worship. So it's one of those things where you're, you're singing the praise song and saying, God, I will praise you, which I'm already doing, right? Um, it's, it it kind of becomes an emphasis point there. Um, but the, the whole context of the Psalms are that kind of both personal devotion and group devotion for ancient Israel. As opposed to a prophet like Isaiah coming along and saying, you know, somebody's missed something, <laughs> and here's what I think it is. I have a yeah. related question. Uh-huh. Um, so oh, I've heard I've heard of ongoing debates about whether or not Jesus was an eschatological apocalyptic mm-hmm. character. Are those do those debates kind of center around whether he had more of the spiritualizing view or more the eschatological view of this kind of language? It's definitely part of it. Um, 
although there's a real strong consensus at this point that he was apocalyptic. He was. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least among the scholars, there's a really strong consensus on that. Don't you feel like a person has to have both? I mean, the spiritual before you... Right, right. Um, but the idea that it doesn't, it doesn't just start, stop with internal hygiene, put it that way, right? It doesn't stop with, you know, getting, getting yourself internally right with the Lord. There ha- it has to be worked out in some way. And that working out is also going to involve changing of social structures and this and that. All of that is just the logical progression. What the apocalyptic piece does is to say that at any moment, the skies are going to roll back like a scroll and God with his angels is going to show up and fix everything at any moment. And this was just the predominant way of thinking among the vast majority, as far as we can tell, of the Jewish population at Jesus' time. Really, the only people who didn't have some kind of expectation like that were the folks collaborating with Rome <laughs> and running the temple uh, because they were doing just fine. Pharisees and Sadducees both. No, the Pharisees, Pharisees even, were not they even had a tendency toward okay. these kinds of views because the Pharisees are at least out among the people in a way that the folks running the temple are not. I feel like you get that a lot in the Gospels, though. The, I feel like the Gospels often kind of presented as Jesus as the apocalyptic preacher, and it doesn't necessarily portray the Pharisees. Well, we had we had a whole conversation last week about Jesus's relation to the Pharisees. So that's that's what you get, Marcus. Carry <laughs> oh, yeah. on. Um, okay, First Corinthians. Really weird, right? Um, <laughs> I I started reading it, and I'm like. Surely this is 2 Corinthians, because 2 Corinthians is, just, is really weird. We think 2 Corinthians is a composite document anyway from a bunch of different pieces of letters that were sewed together, more or less. But no, this is 1 Corinthians, um, which you know is definitely more uh, likely to have been authentically Pauline. One thing that I wanted to... There's, there's kind of two things. Three things. All right, let's take the second half first. Do we know all of these stories that they're referencing? When I read it, I couldn't remember the details. I had to go look them up. But like verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell or died in a single day. I'm like, I don't remember that one. So it turns out it's from Numbers 25. And, you know, Israel's on its way from Egypt to the Promised Land. They're kicking around Moab. And a bunch of the Israelite men start marrying or otherwise carrying on with the women of Moab. I don't know what was wrong with the young Jewish girls, um, but for whatever reason. And as always happens in the Old Testament stories about sexual immorality, there's always an idolatry piece. So the women start getting them to go worship the Baal of Peor. Uh, And that's a problem. And so God sends a plague (laughs) against them that's only stopped when one of the Israelite men brings his Moabite woman in uh, to his household in front of one of the priests, and the priest grabs a spear and kills him. And then the plague stops. So it's a weird story. 
Um, it's a, one of those difficult texts in the Bible to think about how to uh, put it to use today. And Paul uses it as a cautionary tale, <laughs> right? Just one interesting tidbit. This says 23,000. When I looked in Numbers 25, it said 24,000. <laughs> so maybe it was 23 and a half. I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a rounding error, right? Um, verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, I hate snakes. I make no secret of it. Can't stand the things. Um, so I knew this story. <laughs> this is Numbers 21. It's referred to in John 14, which says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up. Um, it's a story about idolatry, um, grumbling on the way. Uh, God sends these serpents into the camp as punishment. They're biting people, many dead. We don't get a number this time until finally God says, Moses, make a giant bronze serpent. Wrap it on a pole, stick it up, and anybody who looks up at that thing and looks for hope uh, will be saved. And so that's what happens, and they do, and the snakes go away, and they survive the snake bites. Another crazy story. They look at the snake and they're saved. It's as strange to me as it is to you. Yep. Hang it up on a pole. Not the little ones biting you. The one you got look. Yeah, yeah. Don't pay attention to those. Look at the big one. <laughs> so these are these are the uh, examples that Paul has given us. He says these things happen to serve as an example, right? It's kind of a boogeyman story, right? Uh, or or the story that um, Jerry Jerry is not here today. Um, <laughs> Jerry is what we might call follicularly challenged. Paul. And uh, <laughs> there's that story about, I think it's Elisha being teased by a bunch of teenagers, and a bear comes out of the forest, <laughs> kills them all, right? <laughs> Teaches them a lesson. Let this serve as an example, right? There's all kinds of these fun stories. Fun. I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> Through the Old Testament, and Paul's saying, use these as an example. Look up at the, the first section. This idea of being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So um, I have the dubious honor of having written a whole book on baptism, and I avoided mentioning this passage, the whole thing. Why? Because nobody knows what to do with this. Um, there is no baptism, right? There is no point at which water is applied to the people of Israel by Moses. There's a number of stories where water shows up. They pass through that sea. There's a cloud that goes before them, um, which is referenced here. There's water that comes from a rock, which is referenced in the next verse. But none of that looks like baptism. So there's something very symbolic um, getting applied here. There's a saying in Christian interpretation traditions that says anytime you see water mentioned in the Bible, it's always the waters of baptism. You can make that kind of spiritual connection. And that seems to be what Paul is up to here, kind of trying to pull that practice in and say, 
there's this way that all of Israel was baptized into Moses by following this cloud, this presumably moisture-filled cloud, this fog maybe, that went before them, and by passing through the sea. And then uh, there's the rock. The rock is Christ. It, just, it sets up this interesting parallel, because there's water coming from the rock, is what this story is. They drank from the spiritual rock. There's this idea that the rock followed them. So there's some interesting midrash going on here in the Jewish tradition that isn't actually in the text that we have as scripture that Paul must be drawing on. Kind of the idea that there's this rock going with them through the desert and maintaining a water supply. So you've got Moses and you've got Christ. In Paul's thinking, if we, we fast forward to pull in Galatians and things like that, you've got law, Torah, you've got gospel, grace, you've got the way that Israel relates to God, you've got the way that the Gentile nations are brought in to relate to God. And what, Mo, and what Paul is doing is stitching them both together. He's putting the rock there with Moses too. He's saying this water has now been made available to other folks. What Paul is doing here we call allegorical interpretation. You find a symbolic meaning, a spiritual meaning for different things in a story, and you spin your interpretation out from that. We're not really used to that in the Protestant tradition because the Protestant reformers uh, weren't happy with a lot of the ways that this had been gotten used. They thought it was pretty irresponsible the way that allegorical interpretive traditions had built up. A lot of this in their day was tied into practices um, that the Catholic Church had that they didn't think were actually grounded in scripture. And when they made these allegorical interpretations, the reformers wanted to be like, uh-uh, you're just making that up. And so in our tradition, we tend to shy away from that kind of interpretive strategy, even though Paul uses it, <laughs> right? So everything in moderation, right? All right, I'm losing, losing track of where I am. Finally, the gospel. So back to the apocalyptic business. That urgency that it could happen at any moment, this apocalypse, this revelation, this unveiling, this fundamental changing of the world is present in Jesus' story, both in things that Jesus says, but also in John the Baptist. And it's kind of maintained in the figure of John the Baptist in Luke, in less in Luke, but even in Matthew, in ways that those texts don't also maintain it. So I think we've talked, we did talk before at one point about what scholars think the order that the Gospels were written in were. Yeah. Remember? Mark comes first. We think it's around AD 70, 70 CE, the date for 70 to 75, somewhere in there. Then Matthew and Luke have their own material. They're both pulling on Mark, and then they both have material that they know that isn't in Mark. So there's kind of these four different sources that they're drawing on, doing their own things. In the, probably in the 80s and into the 90s. And then John comes along. There's some really early material in John. There's some really late material in John. We think it probably hit final form 90s into the 100s, something like that. 
If you look at Mark, it's the earlier one, it is the most apocalyptic of the bunch. And there's a... There's a because they used to think Matthew was first. Well, they just changed their mind. Yeah. Well, when... <laughs> 1,700 years ago, <laughs> they thought Matthew was first, and that Mark was kind of a Reader's Digest version of Matthew. They just, like, stri stripped it down and streamlined it, and then went on from there. So that's how Matthew ended up getting put first. But once... We had the tools of historical research at our fingertips in the early modern period. We started looking at it, and the scholars said, nah, it makes more sense that Mark was first. Because they're looking at, really, there's, there's no good explanation for what Matthew and Luke share if they weren't both drawing on Mark. Right? That's basically what it boils down to. But Matthew... Um, loses a lot of the apocalyptic character that's in Mark. Matthew is very much focused on making sense of Jesus within a Jewish Jesus-following context. The primary emphasis is on Jesus as a new Moses. And there's a lot of emphasis on continuity, right? Not a big change in Mark compared to the others. In Matthew compared to the others. Mark, the very first one, it's all rupture. Everything is happening right now. It's all very different. The main thing that you read in Mark is then immediately the next thing happens, right? And then immediately this, and then immediately that. And there's a whole chapter in Mark that we call the mini-apocalypse of Mark, where Jesus is basically saying, if you're pregnant when all this goes down, you're in trouble, right? You, you don't want to have that happen to you. Uh, if you're up on the roof and you see it starting, get out of there, right? Get ready to run. It's all going to go down. <laughs> so it, it's all through Mark. Now Luke keeps a lot of that because you've got John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 saying the axe is at the root of the tree. This vineyard imagery. The axe is at the root of the tree. God has planted and it's gone wrong and God is getting ready to chop it all down right? That judgment is going to be here at any moment. The guy who's going to do the chopping has lined up the stroke, and at any moment it's going to fall, right? That's John the Baptist in Luke 3. Then we get Jesus in Luke 4 showing up at the synagogue, saying, I'm here to proclaim the day, the day of the Lord's favor, right? Deliverance for the captives, um, deliverance for the oppressed. Today, right now, it's changing, and now here... So were they viewing the, the Messiah at the time as a mini apocalypse? <laughs> it's a hard word. That one. Apocalypse? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the, the common expectation about the Messiah was that the Messiah is going to bring this miracle that frees us from Rome. Yeah. Which is pretty apocalyptic. It's going to take a yeah. lot of change <laughs> for that to happen. But yeah. And so here, in chapter 13, we're hearing about the need to repent. Unless you repent, you're going to perish like this, this news that Jesus just heard, right? Somebody says, hey, did you hear about these folks dying? Yup, and if you don't repent, you too, <laughs> right? <laughs> Encouraging um, message. But one of the interesting things, and then at the very end, you get a vineyard back again, right? So in chapter 3, John the Baptist is talking about an axe at the tree in the vineyard. 
Here we have Jesus telling a story about a gardener, plants a tree, or has a tree. It hasn't done anything for three years. The gardener's ready to cut it down, or the, the owner's ready to cut it down, and the gardener says, give me one more year. Let me try. Let me try something. Right? I got, a, I got an idea. It might work. Give me one year. And the idea here is that's Jesus. Right? Jesus is your one year. This is your last chance. And then that axe stroke is coming. And here, even the gardener says, if it bears fruit next year, great. If not, then we'll cut it down. Now's your last chance. Repent, or you'll all perish as they did. But the nice thing here, nice, right? It's a relative term. The nice thing here is notice that there's a tower that falls on some folks. There's this tower in Siloam that falls on 18 people and kills them. And Jesus asks the question, do you think that the people who got crushed when this tower fell were any worse than any of you who didn't get crushed? And Jesus says, no. And this should actually be a comfort because it, it should shift the way that a lot of folks a lot of us still kind of reflexively think, you know, something bad happens to us. It must have been our fault somehow. Even something as random as a tower falling on you, right? It's not, you know, God showing up and zapping you, however, right? It's just some random thing that happens and causes suffering. The reflex is that something, somehow it's my fault. On Interstate 55, going north into downtown, stopped in heavy traffic. And the building falls down on it. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. One that was built right next to the interstate. Yeah. The interstate was built next. Uh, nowhere. Yeah. I mean, this is this is life, right? This happens. You know, that cancer diagnosis or that brain tumor or, um, you know, something happening to a loved one because, you know, five years ago you made choice A rather than choice B and now in your mind you see all this connection, right? And we feel guilty about it. We feel like it's our fault. Jesus is saying, no, it's not you. <laughs> You're not any worse than any of the rest of them. You're all going to die. <laughs> You're all going to die. You're all in trouble. Repent. <laughs> right? But not, there's not this one-to-one connection. Right? Accidents happen. And Jesus is saying, you know, use it as a frame of reference to say, that could happen to you at any moment. Make sure you're doing your best to live right. Make sure that you're repenting. But it's not to say that when it happens, it's your fault, because <laughs> you're not any worse than anybody else. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am, and hopefully will remain, Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.